Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday Bible study. Uh, we meet every Sunday morning in person and online at 10.30 a.m. Uh, in person, we are socially distanced. We're wearing masks, doing all the things we need to do. And online, we uh, do the same Bible study and uh, happy to serve you in that way. Uh, if you have never connected with our church family, uh, you can do so. Uh, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. You can check out our website, faithonhill.com. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, at faithonhill, or you can like us on our Facebook page. Last week, we finished our study of the Gospel of Mark, and this week, we start a new series telling the story of the Christian faith. You know, one of the things that struck me as we went through Mark's gospel was how often Jesus would be in conflict with people over their story. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus interacted with the Pharisees, the religious leaders and teachers and scholars, and they thought that they were moral, upright, upstanding people. And then Jesus pointed out that they would make a big effort to pray these big, long public prayers. And he said, you guys are just doing that so people give you attention. You guys make a big effort of, of looking good on, on the outside, but on the inside, it's dead. On the outside, you keep all of these rules, but privately and in secret, you break the rules left and right. On the outside, you talk about observing God's laws, but privately, you cheat widows out of their property and you dishonor your, your family by not taking care of your elderly relatives. You, you talk a big game, but you lack substance. So Jesus wasn't just attacking them. He was challenging their story about themselves. The same thing would happen with his disciples, Jesus' closest followers. And one day Jesus was saying, who do people say that I am? And so they said, well, some say you're a good teacher. Others say you're a prophet. Some say that you're like the, the reincarnation of Elijah, the, one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. And others say that you're the Messiah. And then Jesus looked at them and, and very directly and pointedly said, who do you think that I am? And they said, we think that you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said, that's true. And the Messiah must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and die. And they said, no, that is not how it's going to be. Now, here are men who have just declared that they believe Jesus is their savior. And then when Jesus tells them what the savior needs to do, they're in conflict with him because he is challenging their story of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah will do. You see, they liked all of the parts of the, the Hebrew scripture, the prophecies that talked about Messiah as conquering king. And indeed, Jesus will come again as conquering king and ignored all of the parts of the prophecies in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, they ignored all of those parts talking about the suffering servant, 
how, G, how the Messiah was going to come, how he was going to suffer. In Daniel chapter 9, it says that Messiah, the prince, will be cut off and left with no uh, legacy, no, no descendants. They ignored those parts because their story superseded what the scriptures actually said. The Pharisees' story about themselves superseded their reality, and a lot of people live that way. Our stories about ourselves are often more true to ourselves than what the actual truth is. Our stories about ourselves are often more important than what the facts are. And so in this series, we're going to talk about different elements and aspects of our Christian faith. And we're going to ask and answer three questions. What story do we as Americans tell about this part of our faith? What story does God actually tell? And what story do we as Christians live by? What story do we tell? What story does God tell? What story do we actually live by? Did you know that nine out of 10 Americans believe in God? 90% plus of Americans believe in God. And even those who don't, that 10%, and it, it may be higher now, but that 10% who do not believe in God, they're not necessarily atheists. In fact, most atheists that I've met who say, well, what are you? I'm an atheist. When I've pressed them, uh, really they're more like agnostics. They, it's, it's, they don't have any proof of their being a God. But nine out of 10 Americans believe in God. If you believe that it's harder to tell somebody about Jesus because most Americans don't believe in God anymore, that's just not true. Most Americans, when, when you and I as Christians have a conversation with somebody who, who is not a Christian, we have a common ground that we believe in some kind of higher power or deity. We have a shared belief in that general assertion. And if you are watching this this morning and you are not a Christian, if you are not a follower of Jesus, then I want to acknowledge that you and I have a shared belief. We believe, as nine out of 10 Americans do, in a God, a deity, a higher power, a creative force, whatever you want to call it, we share that belief. Now, admittedly, we do not share all the same beliefs about who or what that God is. In fact, only a slight majority, about 51% of Americans, believe in God as described by the Bible. Now, all of these statistics that I'm giving this morning are from the Pew Research Group. And the Pew Research Group is, is incredibly respected, and, and they keep tabs on the trends of American uh, religious thought. And in 2018, they did this big study and they looked at it and they said, yeah, nine out of 10 Americans, 90% believe in God, but only about 51% of those who believe in God believe in the God described by the Bible. And that would not just be Christians, by the way, the Pew Research Group, um, they're not being too selective on how they define that. You could include non-Christian groups such as the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, uh, groups uh, and religions and faiths such as uh, Judaism and, and Islam both get labeled as people of the book. Um, so 
only about half of Americans believe in God as described by the Bible. By the way, again, let's acknowledge a common ground. There are many Christians in America who see their chief enemy as Muslims in America. When I lived in the UK, I lived in Manchester, England, in an area with one of the higher per capita Muslim populations. And people would ask me, because I lived in the UK during 9-11, and they would ask me, well, what's it like with, with all the Muslims there? And I'd say, they are the easiest to talk to because we have the most common beliefs. They understand about sin and repentance. They understand about God and justice. They understand about many of the concepts that we as Christians believe. It's an easier time talking to someone from the Muslim faith about the Christian faith than it was talking to somebody who had uh, a white uh, secular English person who had grown up in sort of a Christian context, but had no interest in any of it. Far easier to talk to somebody uh, from a, uh, you know, Pakistani uh, ethnicity, Muslim religious background than it was to talk from, to somebody who grew up white Church of England, but has no interest in it. That was an interesting fact. And I want to acknowledge that commonality. Here's the thing. Out of the 51% of Americans, or sorry, out of, the, out of the half of Americans who believe in God. So that 51% number is a little tricky because nine out of 10 Americans believe in God and only half believe in the God of the Bible. But out of that half, only 16% identify as being born again. Now that's still a substantial number. America still has a large Christian population, but that's definitely decreased. 16% of Americans identify as being born again. So 90% of Americans believe in God. Only half of those who believe in God believe in the God as described generally by the Bible. And only 16% describe themselves as born again. And, and if you believe in God, you generally follow sort of a Judeo-Christian ethic, but you're not born again. What I believe this tells us is that America believes in God, but generally speaking, we believe in a God of our own image or our own imagining. And I think that shows in the common stories that you hear people tell about who God is and how God relates to them. How many coworkers, neighbors, family members, friends have you had? Maybe this has been you at some point, either today or in the past who will say, they, they'll speak of God in terms of a good luck charm. Oh, the man upstairs was looking out for me today. Oh, I just got to, you know, angels and saints preserve us. I don't know why Irish people, I, I think it's because people think I'm Irish because of the red hair. As far as we know, I'm not. Probably somewhere. But, but the idea, you know, this idea of the, the God's up there looking out for me and anything... Uh, you know, inexplicably good in my life. Oh, God must have blessed me today. But equal in that story is this idea of God as this distant or uninvolved creator. Distant or uninvolved. Yes, I believe there's a God, 
Yes, I believe that somehow he, he was involved in the creation of all things. And I don't know how that happened, but, but I know that he created all things somehow, or he was involved in it somehow. It's actually funny to me how many non-Christians I've met who would never say this publicly, but privately, honestly, they have serious doubts about Darwinian evolution. And, uh, uh, we've talked about this when we studied Genesis. I personally believe that God created the heavens and the earth in a literal six days. I don't think or know that it was necessarily 6,000 years ago. Could have been. But whether God used uh, natural or supernatural means in the creation of this world in this universe does not bother me. I'm more concerned that God created things. The question isn't whether God created things. The question is, what has God been doing since? And I think most people, when they tell the story of God in their own life, see God as distant or uninvolved. Where I go to school, what I do for work, how I organize my life, how I, how I uh, schedule my week. When you talk to people about those things, God is nowhere in the conversation about how their life is put together. Yeah, there's a God and he's up there and I, I hope he's blessing me. Uh, I, I hope he's not mad at me too much, you know, uh, but, but is he directly daily involved in my life? No, I don't believe so. That's, that's the story most of us tell. God is either our good luck charm and or he is there, but he's not really that involved. He cares about the big things, but not my life. Or we say, God is love. And I'm picking this one out as a specific example that I think is an example of a lot of different stories that people tell. Because they'll say, well, what is God? Well, I think God is love. Well, what is love? And then when you ask that question, I don't have any statistics to back this up, I'm just speaking of, I've, I've, been, I've been serving in churches uh, for almost 20 years now. 2001, I, I started working at my first church. I've been following Jesus for much longer. Experientially, I found that when you press somebody and they say, well, who's God? Oh, God is love. What is love? Love is whatever they define love as being. Catch that. Who is God? Well, God is love. What is love? Well, love is whatever my definition of love is. Therefore, I am defining who and what God is. If God is, un, if God is uninvolved or distant, that means that the farther away he is, the more vague I feel comfortable about being. That if I define who God is, whether I define God's love or I define God's wrath, whatever I do to define God, he is therefore made in my image, my liking, my preference. Remember I said that Jesus came into conflict with people when he challenged their narrative. And next week we'll talk about people and so then we'll get into how Jesus challenges our narrative of ourselves. But if you challenge somebody's narrative about God, you are in a sense challenging themselves because 
as a majority of people view God based on their own image of things, their own story. And then you say, well, what does the Bible actually say? What does God actually say about himself? People go, no, that's not right. Why? Because I'm challenging their story. Well, how do you know the Bible's true? We're going to get to that in a few weeks. Let me just say this. For the next couple weeks, I'm going to make assertions based on the Bible. And if you wonder why I believe those assertions in a couple weeks, you can find out. Fair? Hope so. So the story that, that most Americans tell is that there is a God, but this God is sort of vaguely defined as whatever we feel most comfortable with. Do we like an angry God? Then that's who God is. Do we like a, a, a God that will never get mad at you? Then that's who God is. I'm not endorsing the movie, but I remember when, when Talladega Nights came out and everybody was, there were these people trying to gin up controversy and, you know, outrage on cable news about the scene where Ricky Bobby is praying to, you know, sweet, adorable baby Jesus, just born, never heard a fly. And then, and then his wife says, you know, Jesus was a man. He grew up. And, and he says, well, I prefer the baby Jesus. And there were people trying to gin up controversy like, oh, you know, how dare this anti-Christian movie. And I was like, that movie's just saying what most people live, that they prefer that the, they choose the type of Jesus that they prefer. So that's the story that we tell. Well, what's the story that God tells? If you have a Bible, whether it be an actual pages and paper Bible, or if you have a Bible app, or you're on your desktop, and you uh, personally, I 99% of the time I'm using a digital Bible. I use the Bible app on my phone. Uh, I use Bible Gateway on my desk, on my uh, on my laptop. If you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John chapter 14 says this, starting in verse six. Jesus answered. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 8, Philip. Now, Philip is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things because I am going to the Father. And whatever I will do, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son you may ask me anything in my name and I will do it. Now that's a tricky few verses. Ask me anything, greater works. It's not what we're looking at this morning. If you have questions, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. Now verse 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commands. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans, and I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will show myself to them. John chapter 14, and I actually read a little more than I intended, but, but verses 6 through 17, Jesus makes a lot of statements that have a lot of implications, but there's three specific claims about who God is, and this is the story that God tells about himself. The first is this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. The first thing to know about what God says about himself is, if you think that you have a understanding with the man upstairs, if you think that you and God are okay, that when I get to heaven, I believe God will just accept me for doing more good things than bad things, or I believe God's going to know I tried my best, so I, I hope it'll all work out. What God says is this, if you approach me in any other way apart from Jesus Christ, it won't work. The first thing that God tells us about himself is that the only way to reach him, to have relationship with him, is through Jesus. It's the only way. The second thing that God tells, him about, tells us about himself in these verses is that there is one God. There is one God, but he is Trinitarian in nature. He reveals himself in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three distinct persons, three in one. Do I understand fully how that works? No, not even close. I think I understand it better than I used to, or at least I'm more comfortable with it than I used to be. There was this guy, uh, St. Augustine, and he said this, if you, if you deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul. But if you try to understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. And what he's saying is this, if you deny the Trinitarian nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, all equally God, not three distinct gods, but one God. He says, if you deny that, you'll lose your soul because you don't believe in the true God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You do not believe in the true God if you deny his Trinitarian nature. But you, he said, if you, if you try to deny the Trinity, you'll lose your soul. But if you try to understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. And what he's saying is, there are things about God that are beyond our comprehension. This is actually the hardest 
uh, message that I will give in this series because trying to tell the story of God is impossible because we do not fully comprehend him. So I will go crazy trying to explain the Trinity. I just know that it's, it's vital, it's, it's life or death that I accept it. Now, can a person be a Christian and not believe the Trinity? That's a different question than can a person be a Christian? Can a person have their sins forgiven? Can a person have the new victorious life in Jesus? Can a person go to heaven? Can a person experience the kingdom of God here on the earth and not fully understand the Trinity? Those are two different questions. I do not claim to be the judge of this world. I do not know who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. I know that the scriptures tell me that there is no way other than Jesus. And so if you try to claim forgiveness of your sins and a a right to enter into God's kingdom apart from Jesus, then I have no hope for you. I'm not your judge, but I don't have hope. If a person tries to claim Christian faith, but they say, I'm a Christian, I believe that Jesus is my Savior, um, but I do not believe I do not believe that he is God. God is God and Jesus is his son. Again, I have grave concern for you if that's what you believe. If you say, I don't fully understand it. If you say that this idea that there's one God and three persons and I don't get that. Oh, I have great sympathy because that's how I feel many times, you know. But if I say, this is who God tells me he is. This is the story that God tells about himself. But I'm going to change that into my image of what's more comfortable. Then I have grave concern. I do not not have great hope for your faith. The third thing that Jesus tells us is that we will not know God without Jesus. It's one thing to have saving faith. And it's another thing to know God. Anytime I try to understand how God works and I take Jesus out of the equation, I get confused. I get off base. There are those who claim that there are two gods in the Bible. There is the Old Testament God. And the Old Testament God is mean and vengeful. And there's a lot of wrath. And the New Testament God, that's Jesus, and he's nice, and he's a sweetheart, and he's never going to, you know, he's going to rickroll you. He's never going to let you down. You know, it's like, uh, you know, the, here, click this link to find out who Jesus is, and you click it, and it's just a YouTube video of Rick Astley singing Never Gonna Let You Down. That's how they see Jesus. What does God actually say? Genesis chapter 1. First of all, if you think the Trinity does not exist in the Old Testament, you haven't read the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God. In Genesis chapter 3, God says that there is someone coming, a descendant of Eve, who will defeat the enemy, who will crush the serpent's head, who will destroy Satan. In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 3, 
we see the Trinity. And you see the Trinity all through the Hebrew Scriptures. You see that God is working, but his spirit seems to be separate and yet equally part of him. And then God will appear as a man. In, in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. You've heard the story. There are three guys. They're thrown into the fire because they won't worship a false god. And instead of being burnt up, they just stand in the fire. And when people look inside the furnace, they see a fourth guy in there and they say, hey, there's somebody else in there and he looks like the son of God. There's parts where uh, a prophet is seeing a vision of things uh, and all of a sudden it's like, were they talking to an angel? Because the next thing you know, it seems like they're talking to God, but he's a man. Abraham was sitting at his tent and he sees these travelers come, and one of them is God in a human form, the incarnation. Now, Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the gospel of John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created by Him. Speaking of Jesus. As we said earlier, Did God create the world in six literal days? As I personally believe, but I'm not white knuckle about. Or did God use evolution? Or did God create the earth in six literal days, but there's a lot longer between Genesis chapter one and Noah and a lot longer between Noah and Abraham? That's actually my personal belief. Um, Sure, why not? It doesn't matter as much how as that he did, that God created the heavens and the earth. So the story that God tells us, Genesis chapter 1, John chapter 1, is that God's a creator. God creates things. You and I are part of his creative work. God has created you. God has created the church. God has created the family. God creates things. Do you want to know who God is? God is not distant. He's actively involved as a creator. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, and chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. God establishes and he creates community. In Genesis 2, he creates the first person, Adam. And he creates a garden and he puts Adam in it. And then he looks and he says, it's not, it's not good for him to be alone. And so he creates the first woman so that, uh, that they would have companionship and, and relationship. And yes, my name is Adam. And no, I've never heard an, an Adam where's Eve joke before. In fact, no joke, I vowed very early on at some point in my life, I made a vow that if I ever, it didn't matter who this woman was, if I ever, as a single man, met a woman named Eve who was my age and that I was at all interested in, I would never marry her. Because I was like, there's no way I'm ever going to marry a woman named Eve just because my name's Adam. And I stuck to that vow. Very happy that I did. Um, but the point is, is that God creates human life and then looks and says, it's not good for them to be alone. God establishes relationship and community. And then in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, and then they hide from God because they sinned, it says that God came down into the garden, and they heard him walking in the cool of the evening. 
how would they have known to hide except that that's what God did regularly? Regularly, God would commune with them. He didn't just establish human relationship, but he established humans for relationship with him. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it says, Out of every tribe and tongue and nation and language and people, God had called together a people for himself. So God takes people from all over in all kinds of situations and all kinds of circumstances, and he brings us together. And they have relationship with each other. They're connected in community with each other. And they're connected in community with God. That's why church matters. Anyone can, can get on YouTube, search Apple Music or Spotify podcasts and find Bible teaching. But to be connected with other believers in a church family matters. And it matters because God has created us for relationship and for community. Sin, selfishness, division separates us from what God intended. Now here's the good news about that. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, that's the real famous passage where it says that the lion will lay down with the lamb. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 5, we see the picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And in it is this new city of Jerusalem where God's people will dwell. God takes broken things and restores and redeems them. God intended us for community and relationship. God created us for these things and we've just destroyed it. And even right now, we are under threat and attack as a church and as churches in general to be divided. The enemy is trying to divide Christians through politics, through our opinions on COVID and the pandemic. Division is being spread among the people of God. It's an attack, I believe. But here's the good news. God takes the broken things and he restores them. Nature the world around us is broken because of the sin of people. And God says, there's going to come a day where I'm going to restore things and the lion will lay down with the lamb and there will be no more death. I, I'm personally, I'm so excited for that day. I love tigers. I love tigers. I'm not a cat person. We just got a dog, but I love tigers. And, and one time at the San Francisco Zoo, I, the tiger was laying right up along the, the glass window. And I got to be, you know, this close to a tiger. There was a very thick piece of glass in between us, which I'm thankful for. But someday that piece of glass won't be there. And someday I'll, I'll walk among the beasts and the grizzly bears and the tigers and all of the things that want to eat me. And I will walk in friendship. Someday we will walk in unity as Christians, without that division, in the, the kingdom of heaven is, is coming. It isn't yet, but it is starting here. And I believe that one of the ways that we can see God's kingdom established here and now is by allowing his restoring work, his redemptive work, 
to eliminate the divisions that are springing up in churches and between churches all over our country. Because the story that we tell about God is that God's on my side. But the story that God tells about himself is that he says, no, I'm here to restore you, to redeem you, to bind you back up. And that's the question is, what story do we actually live by? What story do we actually live by? Because there's the story that we tell, but as we talked about earlier, there was a story that the religious leaders in Jesus' day told, and then Jesus called them out because he said, this is the story you tell, but this is the story you live by. The disciples said, Jesus is the Messiah. That's the story they told. What was the story they lived by? They didn't believe it. I'm going to go die. No. Hey, I'm, uh, they're going to come and you guys are all going to betray me. No, that won't happen. And then what happened? They all betrayed him. What story do we live by? I believe personally from experience that most people live by one of two basic stories. And then you see those one of two basic stories played out in a bunch of different ways. The first story is that maybe there's a God out there and maybe he cares, but he's not involved directly in my life. Maybe there's a God out there. Maybe he cares, but he's not involved directly in my life. I see this in unbelievers all over the place. Oh yeah, I believe in God. Nine out of 10 Americans believe in God. But does he care about you personally and your life? Oh, you know, there's important people. I think God probably really cares about what's going on with the president or the pope or what's going on with, with famous people or powerful people, but me, whatever. And, and we see that story lived out in how we live and how we interact. And it doesn't matter what I do personally or how I respond to God personally because he's not that concerned with me. The other story that people tell is, yeah, God is directly involved in my life. And I know that my flourishing as a human being is directly re related and linked to my relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, here's the interesting thing. In, in, in the Bible, in the book of James, James is writing to these, these Christians and he says, hey, you, you say that you believe and you have faith and that's good, but do you know who else believes that Jesus is God? The demons believe it and they tremble with fear because they know it's true. And yet they are still actively working against God. You can be the person who knows that God is directly involved in your life and knows that your flourishing is directly linked to your relationship with God. And you can still live apart from God. You can go to church every Sunday. You can pray all the time. But because you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, it doesn't matter. There's the story you tell and there's the story you live. And there are Christians who believe in Jesus and at the same time they have a hard time accepting that God actively cares or they don't live that way. Yeah, I go to church every Sunday or most Sundays or once a month or, or once a quarter, but I go to church, sure. Um, but how I order my life and my relationships and my finances and my schedule and my priorities, I live as if God 
is distant and uninvolved, even though I know that's not true, even though if someone were, were to ask me, do you, do you believe that God directly cares about my world and your life? Yes, I believe that, but then how I live is as if he didn't. So there's the story we tell ourselves, there's the story that God tells, but then there's the story we live. And if you're the person who has been living apart from Jesus, and maybe you just don't believe that God cares and that he's distant, then you need to know that God cared so much that he became a man, Jesus Christ, and he lived a perfect life and was put to death even though he had never done anything wrong because we had done wrong stuff. And when he was crucified, God placed all of the sins of the world on his shoulders as a sacrifice, an atonement, a payment for your sin and my sin. And if you think God is distant, know that Jesus proves that he is not. If you know that God is directly involved, but you've been living as if he's not, then maybe the issue isn't the grace of God. You know that Jesus has saved you. You've confessed with your, your, your mouth. You've believed in your heart. You've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You're, you say, I know I'm going to heaven, but I also know I'm not flourishing because I've been living differently than I believe. I believe that God is directly involved in my life, but I've been living as if he's not. For the person that comes to a saving faith, that's called being justified. You're made right before God. For the person who has already been made right before God, but has been living as if God is distant and uninvolved, that's what we call sanctification, being set apart, being made more like Jesus. And whether you need the grace of God or the power of God, God is wanting so badly to give that to us. And wherever you're at, whether you're at home on your couch, whether you've you're got the audio version going on the podcast as you're going for a run, whether you're, you're listening all at once or in pieces, however you're, you're connecting with this, know that God hears your prayers. That Jesus loves you so much that he died for you, but he didn't stay dead, he rose again. And he has promised to send, what is he said? The advocate, the comforter, the spirit of truth. He's promised to send that to us who believe. So if you are one of the nine in 10 Americans who believe in God, but you know that you don't have a connection to him because you don't have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, right where you are at right now, cry out to God and he will hear you. If you are a born again Christian, but you know that you have been living a different story than the one you tell. God is so ready to work in our lives. And that is a wonderful promise. If you have any questions, you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. We'd love to connect with you, but I know that God is so much bigger than we can ever imagine and loves us more fully than we can ever understand. And that is a wonderful promise a wonderful hope. God bless you.